This program is not about suicide. If you or someone you know needs immediate assistance with suicidal ideation or depression, please contact your local 24-7 crisis support service. If you're in Australia, try Lifeline on 13 11 14, Kids Helpline on 1800 55 1800 or the other services listed on our website at wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead. There is no death. There's only me, me, me who's dying. Well, I went home and got rid of the syringes and all the rest of it, came back, and he was still alive. I mean, deeply unconscious, but he was alive. So I put a plastic bag over his head and tied the bag around his head. And the noise was awful because the bag was going in and out of his mouth. And finally, I put a pillow over his head until he died. In the space of six months, Tasmanian nurse Cathy Pryor assisted both her grievously ill parents to die. She was charged with and found guilty of attempted murder and assisting a suicide. Cathy went to jail until a judge decided that both were clearly acts of compassion and allowed her to walk free. The record shows Cathy is a convicted criminal, but should she ever have faced trial? What happens in a society when there is no law for assisted dying, but people are being assisted to die anyway? The fear of a bad death. Let's not make bad laws. And you'll go to sleep. Right. Denying them another option. This leaves me no choice. Of eugenic impulse. This evaluation of We lives. just don't talk about it. Against the invasion of we death. We play the game. I felt judged. It was over. People want to know. I know they can't control the me. The police are obliged to charge me. Away. What the hell can they do? Oh, murder, manslaughter. Denying them another option. Don't do this lightly. You're listening to Better Off Dead. My name is Andrew Denton. I live in Sydney, Australia, and I want to find out why, in my country, good people are being forced to die bad deaths. Here's what our former Prime Minister Tony Abbott had to say when he argued against assisted dying laws on the grounds that it's best just to leave things as they are. We all know that every year thousands of people die surrounded by their families while doctors do their best to ease their pain. Sometimes, I suspect, pain relief hastens death. And for all we know, uh, in some cases, there may even be a private understanding between the doctor and the patient not to prolong things when the end is near. These are matters that should be left to the good judgment and the common sense of individuals, their families, and the people who want the best for them. Let's not try to improve a situation that can never be perfect. Let's not try to improve a situation that can never be perfect. Hmm, that would mean everything, yes? People who oppose assisted dying want to leave things as they are because of the bad things they claim might happen if we did have a law. But what about the bad things that actually are happening because we don't have one? I was very taken by Perry Mason, but also his gorgeous secretary down the street jangled, jangled a few juvenile hormones. Uh, <laughs> I'm very impressed, by the way, he never lost a case. Meet Justice John Coldry, retired. His two great passions are the law and the Essendon Football Club. Alongside those passions sits a fair streak of compassion. In 2003, Victorian newspapers reported Justice Coldry's voice breaking as he handed down an 18-month suspended sentence to 56-year-old Alex Maxwell. What's your recollection of the Maxwell case? 
he felt obliged to honour that that bargain and uh, using a, a book prescribing a method of terminating life, he helped her to die. It was done to honour her promise that he'd made to her and just to ease her, her suffering. Maxwell's wife, Margaret, had inoperable cancer. Alex had promised her that when the pain got too much, he would help her to die. In their caravan on a block of land outside Melbourne, Alex kept his word. He helped Margaret asphyxiate herself using a plastic bag. He was charged with assisting a suicide. I've read your judgment and there was that one quote that stayed with me when he said her last wish was to lie in nice clean sheets in a nice clean bed and cuddle up under the doona. It must be hard uh, not to be struck by the poignancy of that. Oh, oh yes, I, I've... I was quite uh, emotional in uh, sentencing him uh, and uh, I mean he was just a, a thoroughly decent uh, human being. These are very challenging cases and you wouldn't be human uh, if you weren't vastly moved by the, by the situation. A suspended sentence meant that while a conviction was recorded there was no further punishment for Alex. It gives lip service and, and, and gives some kind of um, recognition of the importance of human life. So you send out that message, but uh, you say, well, okay, that's the message, but in this case, and in similar cases, uh, it, it would be retribution. General deterrence really has no no weight. These are, these are unique cases, and, and the law doesn't need to imprison people. This wasn't the first time John Coldry had been faced with a crime of compassion and let the accused walk free. The media like to call them mercy killings, and looking through the files, I found dozens of similar cases from around Australia over the last 30 years. For Coldry, six years Victoria's Director of Public Prosecutions, they represent a law that should be reconsidered. Well, I'd like to see a regime where people who act in this way are, are not put at risk of criminal charges. It's really as, as simple as that. You act in this way in an intolerable situation, often for these people. And then they find themselves often initially charged with murder, ultimately in the dock. And really, I don't think society needs or requires that. It is illegal in Australia to aid or abet a suicide, no matter the circumstances. This is rightly so that people aren't encouraged to take their own life when they are deeply vulnerable or for someone else's personal gain. But it doesn't take into account people like Alex Maxwell, who is carrying out his wife's last wish to help her die because the pain of her cancer was unbearable and there was no legal way to help her. The, these cases don't sit comfortably in a court setting because uh, the person still goes out in the community labelled a murderer. Not all they've done, they've, their motive has been compassion and love. A scar added to a scar. What does that feel like? I'm still angry. Um, I probably didn't realise till today how angry I still am. Uh, I mean, it, it has faded. Um, I've got on with my life. Uh, but at the same time, I still have a, a conviction for attempted murder. Um, there's a lot of jobs I can't get. Cathy Pryor was a nurse in her early 40s in Tasmania, facing the twin calamities of a father dying of cancer and a mother with severe dementia. Her father, Peter, a doctor, had always been upfront about how he wanted to die. 
he'd always said that he'd stored up something when the time came and that was okay. One morning, Cathy got a phone call from the private hospital where Peter was in care. He was unconscious and they couldn't rouse him. I went round and finally when he did come round and regained consciousness, he, um, he admitted what he'd done. He'd taken all his barbiturates. Unfortunately, it didn't kill him. And he was furious. He was very upset that it didn't kill him. Trapped in palliative care, Peter realised he had lost his escape plan. I used to go and visit him every day and he was really getting pretty distressed. And I said, look, Dad, you know, do you really want to go that much? And he said, yes. But he had some heart medication at home and I said, look, do you want me to bring it in? And so I did. Well, it was a pretty horrible night and the phone went the next morning and it was Dad on the phone going, it didn't work. My pulse got down to next to nothing. I didn't die. It's like, oh, no. Was he depressed? Was he angry? (sighs) I think he was depressed. I mean, because it must take a lot to say, this is it, I'm going to go. Um, But he was adamant. In his dying weeks, Peter became desperate. He started talking about trying to either drown himself in the bath or to try and wrap the bell cord around his neck because by this stage his legs were swelling but he also had terminal hiccups which is where you just hiccup for hours and hours on end and it's just exhausting. It was horrible because the other thing he was having was a thing called bronchiospasms where your throat um, constricts and you can't breathe and you choke. There's nothing they can do about that either. I went in one day and he said, I so want to go. I just want to go. And he knew his death was going to be horrible. So I said to him, look, Dad, if you really want to go that badly, I'll take you home and I'll help you. We went home to his house and we walked around the garden and he was so calm. We looked at all his fruit trees. He told me how to prune his fruit trees to make sure people ate the apples and what to do with the raspberries. And it was, it was quite surreal. And finally said, no, I've had enough. Let's go and have a glass of wine. So we had a glass of wine and I said, Dad, you know, do you really want to do this? And he said, I'm so happy. This is wonderful, I'm going. And he said, you are so brave to help me do this. And I just said, look, Hopefully when my time comes, someone will help me. We had insulin, morphine, pethidine, um, and he showed me the vein. He injected some of it himself and then I injected him. And I sat with him until he lost consciousness. And one thing he'd said before he died was, don't let me survive. Whatever you do, do not let me survive. To make it appear as though Peter had suicided, Cathy went home, then came back, expecting to find him dead. I got rid of the syringes and all the rest of it, came back, and he was still alive. I mean, deeply unconscious, but he was alive. I just presumed we'd give Dad all these drugs and he would die. And because he said, don't let me survive... So I put a plastic bag over his head and tied the bag around his head and the noise was awful. 
because the breathing, you know, the bag was going in and out of his mouth. And finally I put a pillow over his head until he died. Um, I was so naive. I just didn't think of the consequences. I just, all I saw was Dad suffering and for him to not to have to endure a terrible death. Distressed, Cathy rang the palliative care unit. I said, look, he's committed suicide. I've come back, he's dead, he's committed suicide. Um, and next thing I knew, the place was full of police, fingerprinting people, detectives, um, the doctor from the hospice, the nurse. Um, I rang Malcolm and my brother who came and I admitted to them what I'd done. And they said, look, I think you, you should tell the truth. So I did. And I was arrested for assisting a suicide. Having just done the unthinkable as an act of compassion for her father, Cathy found herself in a jail cell. So I, and I was in shock. I'd just lost my dad um, and I was in this police cell. She was charged, then released, awaiting trial. And that's when things got complicated. A few days later, the police knocked again. Suddenly the detectives were back on my doorstep saying, oh, we want to talk to you. And I thought, oh, they just hear about Dad. Come in, I'll them a cup of tea. And they said, no, we're here to actually arrest you over the attempted murder of your mother. Kathy and her mum, Anne, were close. Anne had watched her own mum die a lingering death after having a stroke. She had begged for help to die, but there was no help to be had. This had affected Anne deeply. And Mum said, don't ever let me be like that. Don't ever. If, if I end up demented, please don't let me in one of those nursing homes. Anne's fears came to pass. She fell ill with dementia and it was not the gentle kind. She was agitated and distressed and it was horrible. She just was always pacing. She was, you know, she would cry and yell. Um, you couldn't do anything to calm her down and it was just so difficult to watch. Her father, still six months from death, was visiting his brother overseas. Unable to care for her mother, Cathy put her in respite care. I'd go and visit her and she'd be there trying to pull her hair out. Um, she was violent because um, she was incontinent so they'd have to try and sedate her to change her and you couldn't leave her on her own. She would try and find the door and get out and, oh, it was, it was just awful. It was awful. You know, and I adored my mum. Um, so seeing her like that was just, it was just like, oh, my God, I, I can't do this to her. I just can't. In desperation, Cathy went to a doctor who was a friend of the family for advice. And I basically said to her... I've never been here. We've never had this conversation. I will never mention who you are or what you've said. And I said, look, what's the best way to go? And she said, insulin. So um, I had some insulin. You had access to this because you were a nurse? Yes. And so uh, I decided to end my mum's life. Um, that night I let mum have a few glasses of wine. She went to bed, I waited till she was asleep and I injected her. Unfortunately, she didn't die. She was deeply unconscious. Panicked, Kathy rang the family doctor. She was just horrified. She rang some colleagues. They said, 
get your mum to the hospital, we won't treat her, we'll let her go. It's such an extraordinary situation. There's no, there's no anchor here, is there? No. I just thought mum would go, and there's me being naive again. I thought I would say, oh, I found mum dead, and that would be the end of it. Like, how stupid was I, you know? But unfortunately, when you're faced with this, you don't think. All I could see was relieving my mum's distress. Then I went to the hospital. My brothers both came to the hospital. Um, did you tell them what had happened? I did. What did they say? They understood. They didn't want mum to go into a nursing home either. I spoke to the doctor and she said, look, I understand why you've done what you've done. Um, I can't condone it. Look, you could get into so much trouble for this, but I understand. Like a mother before her, Anne lingered for months. For Cathy, it was torture. I was so angry that I, I let her um, end her life like that. It was so horrible. And then finally... Um, Um, uh, the day that she died, they rang me and said, look, um, we think your mum hasn't got long to go. So um, I went in and I sat with her um, for many, many hours um, and I just cried the whole time. I was glad she was gone because... The end was awful. It wasn't, wasn't mum and it wasn't fair. Um, so that happened. Um, would you like to break for a minute? Yeah, yeah. I would. Thank you. When she recovered... Cathy explained that while investigating Peter's death, police had spoken to the family GP who'd given Cathy advice about the insulin. She told them of Cathy's panicked phone call six months earlier, describing the botched attempt to end her mother's life. Cathy was charged with attempted murder and all hell broke loose. Also in the Launceston Criminal Court, the trial has begun for a woman who has been accused of the attempted murder of her mother. The Crown says 42-year-old Catherine Anne Pryor attempted to kill Anne Brand. Suddenly she was on the front page of the local paper and on TV as the daughter who had killed one parent and tried to kill the other. She had to resign a job as a nurse and take work picking fruit. Nearly two years later, Cathy came to trial. The jury wouldn't look at me when they came in and I thought, OK, they just wouldn't look at me. Um, they found me guilty... Uh, so then I got taken back to the cells. Um, you get strip searched, um, get put in prison clothes. You then get taken in a police van in handcuffs down to Hobart to maximum security at Risdon. I was terrified, absolutely terrified, thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to jail. Am I going to get raped? Am I going to get beaten up? Cathy spent 11 days in maximum security while a judge considered the sentence. 
the day that I they took me back to court for sentencing, um, I was waiting down in the cells. My lawyer came to see me and said, look, I don't think it's gone well. I think you're probably going to get at least 18 months up to 10 years. I was just devastated. I just thought, oh, no. But the judge instead met mercy with mercy. Cathy's sentence was suspended. When he finally said, you know, you were free to go, I just sat there and it wasn't... I, someone came up to me and said, Cathy, you can go. And it's like, what? I, I was just in shock. Tell me why you think he didn't put you back in jail. Uh, he, he really believed I acted with compassion and in total love of my parents and why I did what I did. Um, he also, I think, felt that the community as a whole didn't want me to go to jail. I think people want an answer. And I think it, it needs to be addressed. Um, and for being loving and compassionate, I don't think you should be punished. Over the eight months I've been making this podcast, I've spent time with people who are desperately ill and looking for help to die. Because they are forced to look outside the law for a solution, every one of them lives in fear of what might happen to their families if the police get involved. The uncertainty this creates for those trying to help them is agonising. Imagine caring for someone who is dying and who is begging for your help, but being afraid to do so because you don't know what might happen to you. Coral Levitt, a nurse, knows exactly how that feels. I would go into the pan room and cry for ten minutes because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know what to say. I knew I couldn't do it. I knew there was nothing I could do about it. Saying that to a patient that's begging you to die doesn't help, doesn't change it. They don't change their view because you tell them that it's against the law and that there's nothing you can do. They don't see anything else other than their own distress and their own suffering. So sometimes you just had to sit there and hold the hand of a person dying so that they could squeeze it and try and ease their own pain. More and more scars right across Australia. A man who's familiar with them is Melbourne doctor Rodney Syme, if you've just joined us, you can hear his full story in episode three. Rodney knows only too well the chilling effect the absence of an assisted dying law has had on doctors' good intentions. The fear that somebody would make a complaint it inhibits people. Uh, I'm sure it's a great inhibition in, in palliative care where there's all sorts of people watching and, you know, that's why they all go so slowly about the process of, of aiding death. Uh, it's, it's incredibly uh, prevalent, I think, in, in nursing homes. It's very, very hard for people in nursing homes who are near the end of life. They're just waiting to die. And they very, very often have a lot of pain. But it's notoriously ill-treated because uh, the fear of uh, being seen to have uh, cause somebody's death by too much medication. For over a decade now, Rodney has been challenging the law by openly assisting people to die. He estimates the number of people he's helped at over 100. What I've done is to 
help people to end their own lives. Mm. I've not ended anybody's life. And for many, many years I thought, yes, I'm breaking the law, this is very dangerous. But even though under the Crimes Act it's a serious criminal offence to aid and abet a suicide, Rodney is yet to be charged. I was interviewed by the police on up to nine occasions and they were sympathetic and apologetic and just going through the motions. So I gradually formed the opinion that really the authorities were just trying to evade this issue. A law that no one wants to enforce. What does a judge make of that? John Coldry. Uh, the fact that, that those sort of actions can be taken and that there's no official response uh, suggests, I think, that this law is not working and uh, if it's regarded as unjust, inappropriate, pointless to enforce it, then, then let's change it. So it would be fair to say it's, it's out of step with community needs today? Well, it's hard for me to judge that. Uh, You're a judge. <laughs> You've got to judge. That's right. <laughs> I've been out of it for eight years. Um, but I would suspect that the majority of, of the community would be uh, sympathetically disposed to some kind of regime that, that allowed people suffering intolerable pain and, and, and incurably ill to be assisted to die. Professor Margaret Odlovsky, Dean of Law at Tasmania University, thinks the lack of response to Rodney Symes' challenge underlines a deeper problem. I mean, he's clearly wanting to provoke a reaction because he's so committed um, to, to having law reform. And he's really putting himself forward as a sacrificial sort of lamb <laughs> to, you know, to say, look, investigate me, I'm admitting this, um, you know, either prosecute me or change the law. I don't think it's really appropriate that we, you know, society and legal authorities stand by and turn a blind eye to this. Um, it really undermines the, the, you know, the authority of the law. For all we know, uh, in some cases, there may even be a private understanding between the doctor and the patient not to prolong things when the end is near And I say, good on people for being so sensible about these very delicate situations. When Tony Abbott argues, as many do, that a private understanding between doctors and patients about a sister dying is better than a law, what he's really saying to patients, to us, is when it comes to the one medical catastrophe we all know we're going to face, our deaths, good luck in finding the help you might need. As Marshall Perrin, former Chief Minister of the Northern Territory and architect of the first law anywhere in the world to legalise assisted dying points out, this leaves us wide open to abuse. Today in Australia, a doctor can assist a patient to die with no witnesses, no second opinions, no cooling off periods or whatever. So if you want to have a conspiracy with your doctor to put someone away, now is the time to do it. Not when you've got a regime that requires two doctors, independent of each other, psychiatric reports and witnesses to the whole event and the whole thing done in a, over a period of time with a specific procedure, all ending in reports to the coroner and so on. Surveys show that Australian doctors have been helping people to die for many years, 
Do we know that all of these assisted deaths were above board? That they were what the patient wanted? That no one stood to make personal gain from them? No, we don't. We don't know anything much about them because, unlike countries where laws for euthanasia and assisted dying do exist, there's no system here to tell us and no clear rules for doctors to follow. I think, for me, perhaps that's the most troubling part. Professor Margaret Odlovsky. In an environment where you can't rely on an open dialogue, there is a greater risk that doctors may tend to make decisions on behalf of patients. So, in other words provide assistance even in the absence of an explicit request. And it seems that the the incidence of that is greater in a country such as Australia, where ostensibly euthanasia is prohibited, than in countries where it is legalised, such as the Netherlands. Fancy playing Dr Lotto at the end of your life? Neither do I. These are matters that should be left to the good judgement and the common sense of individuals, their families and the people who want the best for them. Tony Abbott speaks for many politicians in Australia when he says that with assisted dying, we should just keep things as they are, under the radar and off the books. Let's not try to improve a situation that can never be perfect. But here's another thought. Let's admit that this situation for doctors, the police, judges, families and most especially the dying is so far from perfect that it demands improvement, that a decent society doesn't turn away from other people's pain. If you'd like to learn more, head to the episode page at wheelercentercom slash betteroffdead. Next episode, we're going to find out what it's like to live in a society where there is a law to help people die. The Netherlands is home to Europe's longest-running euthanasia legislation. Often we're warned of the dark culture of killing that this has given rise to. But if the laws are that bad, why is public support for them running at over 80%? Perhaps there's more to them than we've been told. Next episode, the Dutch get their say. Twelve angels from the north Twelve angels from the south Twelve angels from the east Twelve angels from the west Look, if I could have my parents back here at this table now, I could look them both in the eye and I'm sure they would say thank you. No, I don't have any regrets. I just regret that it wasn't allowed to happen in a legal way. Angels leaping from your mouth Angels lighting on your shoulders East and west, north and south Better Off Dead is produced by Andrew Denton and Bronwyn Reid for Thought Fox and the team from the Wheeler Centre. Visit wheelercentre.com slash betteroffdead to hear the series and subscribe and to learn more about the people and ideas from each episode. Angels dancing on your breast Angels happy just to linger North and south, east and west Ooh